Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now, listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, everybody. Good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Um, as Chris said, this is a, a class where I'm glad that we have a lot of interest, and yet it's not a fun subject. But I think it's one that, as believers particularly, we need to make sure that we're cognizant of what our Jewish friends have been through, uh, the, the true history behind it. There's a lot of misinformation out there uh, and Holocaust denial today. And so um, in commemoration of Yom HaShoah, or the uh, Holocaust Memorial Day in Israel, which is next Wednesday, um, we want to take a look at the Holocaust and, and remember it today. So I'm going to share my screen. Um, I will tell you that your notes, I have notes for you, and those will be sent to you um, along with the uh, recording of tonight's uh, session here. So let's see, should be, there we go. Chris, give me a thumbs up. Are you seeing the screen? Okay. Um, so we call this Yom HaShoah or Holocaust Remembrance Day. Why, why two names? Well, let me begin here. Um, Shoah is the Hebrew term for the Holocaust. It means catastrophe. So Yom is day, HaShoah, the, the catastrophe. So it's the day of the catastrophe when we remember the Holocaust. Um, there are two Holocaust Remembrance Days. There's one in January, which is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And then Yom HaShoah is the Israeli Remembrance Day. So that's what we're commemorating tonight. Um, Holocaust is a Greek word, and it means mass destruction by burning. Um, Anti-Semitism, which is the hatred of the Jewish people, is something that was not invented by the Nazis. It's not a 20th, 20th century or 19th century invention. In fact, really, it goes back as long as the, the beginning of, as far back as the beginning of the Jewish people. Um, one of the first instances we see of anti-Semitism on a, on a massive scale is what we just, what the Jewish people just celebrated their victory over. It was the Passover, their victory over Egypt and God's deliverance of them. Um, so it's a satanically motivated hatred of God's chosen people. If you want to know more about that, we have a class that we did, I think it was last year, that I taught on anti-Semitism. So go back, get the video for that, and you can look at that. But when we're talking about the Holocaust, we have to understand a couple of things. First, we have to understand that the 1930s, um, and I use that generally, we can, we can really go from about 1918 through the beginning of the 40s. They were this time of the perfect storm for genocide. Um, following World War I, you have the Treaty of Versailles, which was signed in, in France. And there's a lot of debate about should it have been 
uh, was it too heavy handed? Was it was it not heavy handed enough? At the end of the day, uh, it it basically said that Germany had to pay war reparations for World War One, and this put an uh, an enormous economic strain on Germany. Uh, we think we have inflation now. It was nothing. Ours is nothing compared to what Germany was going through. Um, there was also political turmoil. When you have economic problems, what happens? Well, you have these demagogues and, and, and would-be dictators who rise up and they say, hey, I've got the answer to all of our problems. So we have that. That's the first thing we have. We also have scientific theories. Today, we call it pseudoscience, false science. It was not considered pseudoscience uh, when it was in the mainstream, something to always keep in mind. Um, one of these things was uh, eugenics. So this idea that there is uh, there are racial traits. And you can see in this picture, this is a scientist who is measuring the nose and, and features of this man's face with calipers. And it was the belief that you can you can determine a person's race by measuring their features. So this is this is science taken to a very unhealthy place. Um, we also had uh, Darwinism, uh, evolutionary theory, which is harnessed. And now we, we think, well, if it's if there's survival of the fittest within species, why can't that apply to the races? Now, biblically, there's there's a lot of problems with this. Race is, is not a biblical um, idea. This is a this is a construct that's been developed by people. But we have that these scientific theories emerging. And then finally, we have technological advances. One of the things as we look at history that we see is that whenever man does something that we might term true progress, we also see how it's harnessed to do evil. And we see that with technology, even now, of course. But at this time, you have a lot of advancements. And I'll just point out a few. One, uh, if you remember in World War I, one of the novel things that was happening on the battlefield was that mustard gas is being used. So this is not just shooting at your enemy. Now you can gas your enemy. Um, we also have uh, happening here in the United States, actually just a few miles from where I live, Henry Ford's assembly lines. He is he's learned how to systematize the production of, of machines. That's going to be very important to Nazism, as we'll see. Um, and then methods of mass killing and mass sterilization which we're going to see as well. And this is kind of tied back to eugenics. So we have this perfect storm. All of these things converge. Um, Germany is considered the most liberal, and I mean that in the in the a good sense, um, freedom-loving place in the world. It is a very wealthy nation, a wealthy culture. It's a, it's a cultured people, um, the height of civilization. And yet it's going to also be the, uh, purveyor of one of, of the most horrific genocide that we know of. I want to give you just a very extremely brief overview of the Holocaust uh, by date. I, I give you this uh, in a link to a more thorough timeline in your notes. But in January of 1933, Adolf Hitler is appointed chancellor. Now, what we often think is that Adolf Hitler, since he was a dictator, he grasped control illegally. Um, no, he was appointed very legally by uh, the government to take over the government. Now, he 
he eats up uh, this power. It goes, he's a power hungry person, but he, he is appointed chancellor legally. Um, in March of that year, a couple months later, the first concentration camp opens. This is called Dachau. And this is a camp, not just for Jewish people. Actually, initially, it's not for Jewish people at all. It's for political prisoners. So for communists, for socialists who are living in, in the Third Reich. Um, later, it will be used for um, Jewish people, for the Roma or the gypsies, for those who identify as homosexual, and for other dissidents living in, in the Third Reich. In September of, uh, or excuse me, in April of that year, we have the first of Germany's anti-Jewish laws that are passed. And this essentially excludes Jewish people from major parts of the culture. So they have quotas on how many Jews can attend a university. Um, they will exclude Jewish children from certain public schools and, and the like. A few months later in September, the Nuremberg race laws are issued. And this is, these race laws, are based on the idea that there is such a thing as Aryan blood, uh, that there is German blood, and that it needs to be kept pure. And so those who are not Aryan, by the way, Hitler would not meet his own definition of Aryan. He was not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed person. Um, but we needed to keep people like the Jewish people out of, of the gene pool. And so it forbade intermarriage of Jews and Gentiles. It forbade um, many different different citizenship rights for the Jewish people and limited their rights and marked them for discrimination and persecution. Um, even in grade school at this time, children, uh, not uh, German children are being taught the racist myth that Aryans are superior to Jews and to other groups. So all, the, all of that comes under the Nuremberg race laws. On November 9th and 10th, 1938, this is where historians often mark the beginning of of blatant physical persecution of the Jewish people. It's called Kristallnacht or the night of broken glass. Jews in Germany are targeted. Uh, Nazi leaders organized a wave of attacks on Jews living in Germany. Some civilians joined Nazi paramilitaries to loot businesses owned by Jews and to burn synagogues. Um, many Jewish people are arrested and sent to camps that have been established. The Nazis hoped that violence would drive the Jewish people out of Germany. The German police at all levels joined anti-Jewish actions during Kristallnacht. The Jewish people were arrested on official orders. And after many of their, their synagogues and businesses are lit on fire, the fire departments refuse to put the fires out. So imagine what you would feel like. All of the systems that you have as a citizen of Germany, uh, the taxes you have paid to fund the fire department and the police department and the government in general, have been turned on you. And this is the situation the Jewish people are in. Jumping ahead, uh, again, I said this is very brief, uh, but in January of 1942, we have the Wannsee Conference or the Wannsee Conference. Um, and this is the meeting that is held to coordinate what has been, what will be termed the final solution to the Jewish problem. So the Jewish people are a problem to Germany. None of the other nations want them. And Hitler basically says to the nations of the world, you want the Jewish people so much, take them. And most of the world closed their gates, their borders to the Jewish people, including the United States, by the way. Um, this also results in the establishment of a network 
of concentration camps and extermination camps um, in which 1.7 million Jewish people will be murdered between 1942 and 1943. Finally, May 7th, 1945, Germany surrenders to the Allies. What is the result? Well, yes, the, the Allies win, but six plus million Jewish victims uh, perish. Five or more million Gentiles are uh, perish. And these are non these are not uh, non-military dead. These are civilians, so who are who are targeted. But these numbers are really impersonal and difficult for us. I don't know about you. I can't picture six million people, let alone eleven million as as the whole. So it might be better to think of the murder of just if you picture your father or your mother or one of your children being murdered, and then multiply that six million times. Imagine the devastation. Well, today we're going to look at the life of one man who is a Holocaust survivor, uh, a very dear friend of mine, uh, to keep the memory of what happened to him and the victims of the Holocaust alive. And we're also going to highlight the uh, two people, a couple, who used their lives to rescue Jewish people. And we're going to look at both of those. So let me begin here with my friend Martin. Martin Ackerman was born in 1928 or 1929 in Mexico City, Mexico. We don't know exactly because he, his uh, papers were lost during the war. His parents were from Hungary. Uh, his father was from uh, Munkach, which is part of Ukraine. Um, his mother was from Budapest, Hungary. And they married and soon after immigrated to Mexico for work. His dad uh, was involved in factory work in managing a factory and they opened one in Mexico and asked his father to go uh, and relocate to Mexico. While they are there, they have children. Uh, first they have Jean, who is on the right there. Then they have Solomon, who will later change his name to Martin when he comes to the United States. And um, the mother, Mrs. Ackerman, we don't know exactly what happened, but Martin's parents separate. And the father stays in Mexico. His mother takes uh, Martin and Jean back to Hungary or to her home. And it's there that she gives birth to Peroshka, the youngest, the daughter, who is, um, was, um, she became pregnant in Mexico and then has this, has the little girl back in Budapest. Life for Martin and his siblings um, were, it was very happy. They were, they were, extremely poor. In fact, Martin told me, um, he said, I don't remember ever having a toothbrush. So simple, so poor were they. He didn't even have a toothbrush at the time, but they were generally happy. Um, this is Martin when he was about 10 years old, about 1939 or so, the right. Um, there, his, his life really centered around the Jewish quarter. He lived on Karali Street or Karali Utta in Budapest. And this was this is the historic Jewish quarter of Budapest. There, his whole life really revolved around one building, and that's the apartment building that his grandmother somehow owns. And he wasn't sure how she ever came to own this. Uh, his grandfather died when he was when Martin was quite young, and so she's left with this apartment building. She two daughters, or excuse me, three of her daughters, one of which is Martin's mother, 
And then Martin and his two siblings all live in one apartment within this building. And the rest of the building is rented out to tenants. Also at the back side, on the back side of the building in a small room is their synagogue or their shul as it's often termed. And it was a very small Orthodox synagogue. And so he lived and worshiped all in the same building. In 1929, a new uh, organization is started, a new party, and it's called the Arrow Cross Party. It's a fascist political organization. It's essentially the Hungarian counterpart to Nazism. And in May of 1929, the Hungarian elections take place. And these, this group becomes the second most popular party. They receive about 30 seats in uh, Hungarian parliament. In his little book that he wrote, Martin writes this. The Hungarian Nazis, they were called the Arrow Cross Party. They had always been there in Budapest, but I became aware of them in 1940. I remember that the stores in Budapest had metal curtains that they would pull down over the windows. The only reason I remember them is because the Nazi young people would shove me into them and my head would hit the metal. Uh, these people would call him Christ killer. And he said some of these kids came out of their churches on Sundays. And if they saw Martin or any other Jewish people on the streets, they would assault them. In, 1990, excuse me, in 1944, Germany is occupied by Hungary and they give support to the Arrow Cross. So they ally themselves. They're both uh, they're pretty much in the same vein. They're, they're um, far right organizations. And so in April of that year, actually April through July, and I'm reading this from, uh, from the Holocaust Memorial Museum, the Germans and Hungarians deported Jews from the Hungarian provinces. By the end of July, the Jews in Budapest were virtually the only Jews remaining in Hungary. They were not immediately ghettoized. Instead, in June of 1944, Hungarian authorities ordered the Jews into over 2,000 designated buildings scattered throughout the city. The buildings were marked with stars of David. About 25,000 Jews from the suburbs of Budapest were rounded up and transported to the Auschwitz-Birkenau killing center. Hungarian authorities suspended the deportations in July of 1944, sparing the remaining Jews of Budapest, at least temporarily. Martin writes this. At this time, we had to wear yellow stars. We were restricted on what time we could go out and when we couldn't. One day they announced that everybody was to leave the house. They took us into a big place. I think it was a hippodrome. They got all the Jews from Budapest, at least all that they could catch because some of them were hiding. Once we were all collected, they separated us. My brother and I went to one side and the other part of my family, this would be his mother, grandmother, two aunts and sister, went to the other side. This was the first time I was away from my mother, my family. The Nazis said, pack only what you can carry on your back. After being ordered to hand over his wallet by a member of the Arrow Cross party, something strange happened. And this is what Martin writes. I gave the Nazi my wallet that had only my Mexican birth certificate and a picture of the Belzi Rebbe. This is a, a famous Orthodox rabbi. This picture that my grandmother gave me. I told the Nazi it was my grandfather. He gave me back my wallet with the birth certificate and the picture. Surprisingly, this man also gave me 100 pango, which was their currency. It was a big sum at that time for me, at least. 
I never had seen 100 Pango. The man said, good health, good luck. To this day, I do not know why he did that, but it helped me survive the war. I later used it to buy apples and potatoes from the farmers. Now, this picture you're seeing is the, the picture that Martin was carrying with him when he was he encountered this uh, member of the Arrow Cross Party. In fact, uh, several years ago, I was helping him clean out his desk. And I said, Martin, what's this? And he couldn't believe it. He didn't know he still had it. And so he gave it to me to tell his story. Um, at least one of Martin's aunts, probably both of them, were taken to Auschwitz. Um, miraculously, they survived and moved to Israel after the war. His mother, his sister, and his grandmother also all survived. Again, this is very unusual that the whole family would survive the Shoah. At one point, they were sheltered in one of Raoul Wallenberg's safe houses, which I will uh, tell you a little bit more about in just a moment. In the meantime, Martin and Jean were taken to a brick factory in Buda, which is the west side of the Danube River. So there's Buda and there's Pest. So they're taken to Buda. While there, they were put to work. And Martin writes, we had to dig ditches and put up cement blocks to stop the Russian tanks because the Nazis were afraid they would try to occupy Hungary. We had to dig so much. I don't know how we did it because we were very weak from not eating. The old people, they couldn't do it. It was just impossible. We helped, we helped, my brother and I, one of the old guys, but I don't think it helped him at all because one day he disappeared. I don't know what happened to him. After his time at the brick factory, Martin and Jean were put in the Budapest ghetto where they were forced to work. Martin writes, incredibly, we were once out working on a house, demolishing it, getting the dangerous things off of the roof. When we finished that work, we came down and we could hear the sirens, meaning it was an air raid. You won't believe this. A bomb fell down just a short distance from where I was standing. When the bomb hit the ground, he, Martin saw it bounce into the air. When it came back down, it detonated upon impact with the cobblestone street, sending his brother flying through the air and through a display window of a nearby store. The explosion forced Martin violently to the ground. Metal shrapnel hurtled through the dust-laden air, one piece embedding itself into the back of his scalp, another piece lodged in his earlobe, where it remained until the day he died. Martin writes, it was chaos. I don't know where the guard was, but lots of people died there. And when I woke up from the blast, the first thing I saw was a man's leg away from his body. And the guy was pleading, everybody, please help me. Miraculously, Gene was unharmed by his crash through the display window, but Martin was injured by the shrapnel. Martin writes, a young Nazi grabbed me and took me someplace where they couldn't see us. And he had a satchel on. I don't know what you call it, but he took it out. He took out from it a bottle of liquor and he gave me a shot. He felt sorry for me, I guess. Martin often spoke about this, that he said in the history books, we see such a stark division between the good guys and the bad guys. And he said, so often there was an overlapping. You couldn't tell who really is looking out for me and are, are all of the people on the bad side really there because they hate our people. Well, Martin and his brother were later taken to another site where they were forced to load bombs onto railroad cars. Some civilian Hungarians did offer to help the Jewish people from time to time. And Martin writes, 
The average Hungarian residents were hardworking people. They felt bad about us doing that job. They fed us once in a while. That was the first time I had lentil soup with sausage. In fact, I think it was the first time I had pork too. Well, as the Russians moved closer to Budapest, the Nazis began moving the Jewish people toward the Western border, towards Austria and towards Germany. This is the picture of a Hungarian uh, people coming out of Budapest. It's called a death march. Um, and they're men, women, and children in this picture. Martin and his brother were part of this march, often called the death march. According to one historical site, Martin and other deportees were supposed to walk in transports of two to 4,000 people covering 12 and a half to 15 and a half miles per day. Martin writes about this. He says, the end of the war was near. So they got all of the people from the factory and they tried to take us to a concentration camp. I don't know which one, but we had to walk and we walked and we walked. And if you couldn't walk anymore, you were shot. I saw it with my own eyes. They shot an old man. He didn't fall down. He just slumped to his knees and was dead. I don't know how many they killed that time, but the march went on. At the same time, many around the world did try to save as many of the Jewish people from Budapest as they could. And I'm quoting here from, uh, from a Holocaust blog about Budapest. They say, diplomats of neutral countries, Zionist activists, as well as thousands of family members, friends, and their helpers were trying hard to lift as many people as possible out of the marching lines based on various pretexts. Cars and bicycles hit the road carrying messages, parcels, and real or forged protective documents. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not gonna go through quite everything I was going to, to say about Martin, but I do wanna let you know in your notes that you'll receive, I'm sending with you the entire booklet that Martin wrote. So he has all of these accounts uh, that I'm excerpting here. Um, eventually they were put into, um, they're taken back to the Budapest ghetto because they had foreign birth certificates. He and his brother, Gene did. And uh, for a really interesting story, they make it out of the ghetto past the Nazis and they're eventually reunited with their mother and sister who are, are living in at this time, a, um, a safe house that Raoul Wallenberg established. Now I mentioned these before, Raoul Wallenberg was a Swedish diplomat in Hungary. And he set up these houses where uh, they were under the Swedish government's control and Jewish people were supposed to be able to go there and be uh, free from the Nazis. Now that didn't always happen. The Nazis sometimes stormed these places and killed the Jewish people. The Russians actually did the same when they came in to liberate Hungary. Um, they attacked the Jewish people in these places as well. But his mother and sister did survive. The story of what happened uh, to Martin is, uh, after the war, is long and winding. Um, but he had the choice of immigrating either to Israel or to Mexico. And you can read in his book how that happened. But he did choose to return to Mexico, where he lived for 10 years before immigrating to the United States, where his brother Gene had immigrated. So I met Martin in 2014 uh, through a volunteer project through the Friends of Israel in Las Vegas. And he became a very, very dear friend and really part of our family. In fact, he did not, uh, he and his wife could not have children. And so um, his wife had died years before, but my children 
kind of adopted Martin and they called him Zadie, which is Yiddish for grandpa. So this was taken on Holocaust Remembrance Day in 2022. Um, and then he passed away just a few weeks later at the age of um, 93. In 2019, Toro University in Las Vegas granted Martin and other local survivors an honorary doctorate in humane letters. And so this is Martin with his doctorate degree. Well, that's Martin. Now I want to uh, go on to speak about those who rescued Jewish people. Um, I want to introduce you to two people, Wapka or Wap and Haltia uh, Kustra. They lived in Utrecht, Netherlands, the Netherlands. Um, they were Bible-believing Christians, and they were motivated by their love for Jesus to rescue his people, the Jewish people. Unbeknownst to their neighbors, their friends, and even their three little daughters, they were also part of the Dutch underground, and they worked to undermine the Nazi occupation and to save Jewish people. My family and I had the privilege of knowing their, one of their daughters, Annika, who moved to Michigan. And she often, she shared her family story with us. And so I wanna share it with you. The Kushers lived in Utrecht in a two-story house, a townhouse that was known as the rubber house because it seemed to expand to make room for as many Jewish refugees as came to their door. Annika, our friend, was just three years old when her parents began harboring Jewish people. She was not aware of her parents' secret activity, but her dad was actually a leader in the Dutch underground working to free Holland from Nazi rule and their mother, her mother was helping him. Um, from 1942 to 1944, this family protected eight Jewish people in their home. They kept it secret from the Nazis for those three years and also kept it hidden from their daughters. So I'm gonna show you a video, it's about 11 minutes that Annika is featured in. It's all about her and she's the one narrating this. She's gonna tell you the story from her perspective. So I'm hoping this will work. Let me change over here. If you would, would you just, everybody give me a thumbs up if you can hear the volume. Okay, so just, just a moment. I decided since I was not allowed to be in that room from the through the door, that maybe I would go to the backyard. I ended up just putting my nose right on their window, and I knocked on the window, and I said, Hi, people, I can see you. And all of them were just frozen. They never moved, because they knew deep down in their hearts that maybe they no longer could stay in the house. And that evening, when my dad came home, my mom said, oh, Wop, something terrible has happened. Annika has discovered the, the AIDS. To this very day, I don't ever remember going into the backyard, knocking on the window, talking to them, looking at them. And I knew deep in my heart that I was supposed to forget it. And here it's 70 more than 70 years later, and I still do not remember.
I'd like to invite all of you today to go with me on the trip to Holland from Amsterdam. We're traveling to the city of Utrecht and we're looking for the southern part because that's where our house is. My mother's name is Heltje Bos. My father's name is Bob Koistra. My older sister, her name is Romy. She was seven. My baby sister was only two. And I myself was almost four years old. Even though the Germans had occupied Holland in 1940, life was not bad. In fact, many people did not mind since several matters had improved. But then in the year 1941, the Germans started restricting the Jewish people from using certain public facilities. It was then that the Dutch changed their minds about this occupation. In fact, when they found out that Jews were taken on transport to Germany, some of the people tried to help them. But when the Germans found those, they had to bear a sign saying Judenfreund, what meant friend of the Jews. And they received the very same fate as the Jews. Then my father, who was working for the underground, found out about all this. He and my mother were confronted with the terrible, terrible problem to either know about this and not do anything or try to do whatever they could to work against the Germans. In 1942, my parents started to hate Jewish people. One of the first people who actually came to our house was from Amsterdam and in his mid-60s. And it was maybe six months later that my father was asked to go to the railroad station. And this time he was looking just for one person. Then he arrived. Instead of only finding one Jewish man, there were three people waiting for him. The mother and her 22-year-old daughter. My father could not say to them, I only want one person. So they came to our house and stayed almost for two years. Months later, he was asked again to go back to the railroad station, and this time he knew that he was looking for a mother and her 17-year-old daughter, Alice. And what my father and mother realized was that Alice and her mother had become very lonely for the father and also for the son. So my father went to their hiding place and brought them also to our house. As you realize, this makes eight extra people. My father came to my mom. He said to my mom, there's no food in the whole house. No matter how dark it was, my mother always still saw some light. And my mom's response was, oh, but Bob, we still have water. Another miracle, because that evening someone rang the doorbell, and when my mom opened the door, there was no one there, but she noticed that there was a small package of food on the floor. To this day, we do not know who brought that. What my parents also realized was that it was not enough to have the Jewish people stay in our house. What would happen if a soldier came to our house? Where would they go? They were able to come up with the uh, idea that next to the stairwell, my father was able to make a, an opening, and then he made another opening when you entered the house. And 
once that was done, they were able to take out the sand that was underneath the floorboard. Where would you go with all that sand in the middle of a city? But we lived really close to a uh, big canal. My father at night could dump the sand into the canal. And once they were finished, they had to crawl in there and then they could sit up, but they almost touched the floorboards when they were sitting up. Some of you might wonder if the Germans ever came to our house. Yes, they did. Three times. And this is truly part of the miracles that God allowed to happen in our home. Because each time my parents had been warned ahead of time, one of our neighbors, five houses down from us, actually became a Nazi. But the way it turned out, he was a good Nazi. He would actually say to his next door neighbor, your sons need to leave today because tomorrow they're coming to search the homes. So that neighbor told his next door neighbor and it would travel all through the street. We thank God that each time we, my parents were born ahead of time. There came actually uh, three soldiers in the house. The first soldier, when he entered, he went in the front door, right into the kitchen, out the back door so no one could escape from the back. The second one, he stayed in the long L-shaped hallway, walking back and forth, back and forth. Every step he made was so frightening for the Jewish people who were in the hiding place because it was like they could feel it on their head. The third soldier, he was the one who was going to do the searching. He came up to my mother and asked her, where is your husband? But uh, my mother just shrugged her shoulders and acted like she had no idea where my father was. That was the only time that my father was in the hiding place with the eight as well. One time there was going to be a meeting held, and uh, but to announce the meeting, they had been able to create large posters, but to tease the Germans, they made it look like it was a, the Dutch flag. The Germans decided wherever they saw one of those posters, they would, would just break the window. The only house where the window was not broken was ours. The soldier actually came, went to the front door, rang the doorbell, and then when my mom opened the door, he asked my mother to come outside and please remove the poster from the window. And had they broken the window, they would have found eight Jewish people sitting in that room, in that front room. When it was the 5th of May, 1945, it was in the evening at 10 o'clock at night that my mom actually came to our bedroom and unlocked our door and asked us to come downstairs. And as we entered the front room, we saw a big crowd of people and everyone was hugging and everyone was crying. And that was the very first time that we were allowed to see the eight who had lived with us. 
I'd like to finish by sharing with you a uh, poem that was written by the youngest of the group. But when we hear this poem, it is so difficult to imagine that this could have been written by a teenager. Innocent. It is true, I'm innocent. Everyone knows that. No court even would judge me as guilty. And yet already my fate has been decided. But I will try and bear my burden patiently. God knows it. Maybe I will be killed. Maybe I will be deported. Maybe I will be put to labor. Too soon I will know. Who am I? I'm only a Jew. Okay. Let me get out of here. Start here. So that is the story of the Kustras. And um, this is the girl that she talked about, Ellis. And Ellis uh, told Yad Vashem later on, the, the Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem, that Wap, Annika's father, anytime anything good happened, he would read Psalm 150 to the, to the group. And of course, that's the final psalm, and it's all praising God. And on the last uh, on, the, on the day when they were liberated, one of the men, I believe it was um, was this man, Mr. Pam, he stood up and he read it from the Hebrew and everyone said, praise the Lord. They had, they had made it through the Holocaust. Well, in 1972, Annika's parents were honored as righteous among the nations uh, by Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial Museum, for their efforts to help Jewish people. And in fact, they did save eight Jewish people and kept in touch with Ellis and her family, especially who uh, live in Israel even today. So very special uh, story there with the family. I want to close by um, talking about us. When we, when we look at the Holocaust, we can very easily say, well, that was back then. That was a horrible thing. Aren't we glad it's over? And we should be glad it's over, but we should not be so naive as to think that anti-Semitism is over or that Holocaust denial is not something we must confront. Um, I want to first begin with the rising tide of anti-Semitism. We are living in a time of unparalleled anti-Semitism in the United States. In 2022, there were 3,697 reported 
anti-Semitic incidents. These are only the ones that actually made it to the records in the United States. Overall, there was a 36% increase from 2021 to 2022. And the breakdown is uh, 2,298 cases of harassment, uh, 1,288 cases of vandalism, and 111 cases of assault against Jewish people. So these are increases across the board. We also see that uh, in, a, in a survey done by the Claims Conference, which is an organization that helped uh, provide reparation for the victims of the Holocaust, they did a study a year, about a year ago on US millennials and their knowledge of the Holocaust. Here's just a few stats for you. 56% of US millennials and Gen Z were unable to identify Auschwitz-Birkenau, and there was virtually no awareness of concentrations or ghettos overall. 63% of these generations did not know that 6 million Jewish people were murdered in the Holocaust. 11% of US millennial and Gen Z respondents believed that Jewish people caused the Holocaust. And then 30% of respondents across all 50 states indicated that they had seen Nazi symbols on their social media platforms or in their community. So that this is a problem is evident. We cannot control the world, but we are, we are part of the church if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yad Vashem has honored 28,217 people as righteous among the nations, the Kustras being two of them. These are people who aided the Jewish people in their time of greatest need. And we, while we should be grateful for the heroism of these people, we must also reckon with the fact that compared with the whole population of Israel or of Europe at that time, the number of rescuers is a tiny fraction of the whole. The reality is that many Bible-believing Christians, followers of the Jewish Messiah, did not stand up for the Jewish people. We must be careful not to judge too harshly. Uh, here in the comfort of the 21st century, uh, to say what we would have done or what we would not have done at that time. But as followers of Jesus, we must ask ourselves not what we would do or what we might do, but rather what we are going to do now as we face the rising tide of anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. Allow me to just give you a few um, points here, and I'm, I detail these uh, much further on the notes that you're going to get. But um, one of the good pieces of, of news that came out of this survey done by the Claims Conference is that 64% of those interviewed said that Holocaust education should be compulsory in their school. And 80% said that it's, they believe it's important to learn about the Holocaust to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. So as Christian parents and grandparents, we must make sure that our children understand the reality and the lessons of the Holocaust. What, what can we do though? Well, here's what you can do. First, visit a Holocaust museum. Um, half of all states in the, United, in, the, in the Union have a Holocaust memorial or a Holocaust museum. So there's a pretty good chance there's one near you. And in your notes, I will give you a link where you can um, find the majority of them. No, they're not all listed there, but you might check your state to see if there's one near you. Um, we typically recommend that you don't take any children under sixth grade there. It's just hard. There's no context for genocide and, and emotionally handling that. But I encourage you to visit a Holocaust museum and to take your children at the right time. Secondly, listen to a survivor's testimony. Um, 
a synagogue or a Holocaust museum might be able to assist you in this and in, in meeting a survivor and hearing their story. Now, the number of survivors is dwindling by the day. Those who are alive today were children during the Holocaust. But thankfully, we have other resources where you can still hear a survivor. And I'll list these for you. Um, but you can go to what's called the Shoah Foundation that, um, that Steven Spielberg started to document the stories, the testimonies of these people. And I have in your notes some, some links to other resources. And then third, interact with historically accurate media. Uh, the, the operative words there are historically accurate. There are a lot of Holocaust-related pieces of media, especially fiction, that are not accurate. So I have in your notes given you a list of some that I've used and that have been helpful to me for adults, for young adults, and for children, uh, as well as some films that you might like. One of them is uh, our own Z. Kalisher, who went to be the Lord a few years ago, but his, his story of survival was written by Elwood McQuaid, and we carry it at Friends of Israel. I, I really encourage you to read his story because it's not only a story of surviving the Holocaust, but also his story of how he came to know his Messiah. What should we avoid? Well, I'll give you three here. Inaccurate Holocaust fiction. There, there's a lot of Holocaust fiction. It's very popular right now. Um, and there's some good and there's some bad. We need to make sure that, that what we are consuming, what we're giving to our children is true. Because if we are feeding them stuff that's not true, it actually feeds in to the Holocaust deniers narrative. Because look at this is just Hollywood's version of, of world of war. Um, there's lots of people who die during a war. There was no such thing as a Holocaust. It's all made up. So there are films like uh, the boy in the striped pajamas that are not helpful because they could never have happened. It's not based in fact. There is no way, first of all, a child is in a concentration camp. The children were killed in the camps. And then the idea that there would be a, a Gentile child who'd be able to come up against the fence and feed food and talk, become friends with a Jewish child, it just, it didn't happen. Um, so we need to make sure that we we find resources that are true. Secondly, we need to avoid careless Holocaust analogies. Um, we see this especially with politicians, and I've seen it with Republicans, I've seen it with Democrats, where we need to avoid trivializing the Holocaust by comparing it to things that are lesser than genocides, because it really cheapens what actually happened to the 6 million Jewish people and 5 million Gentiles. Historian Edna Friedberg has written a really helpful article about why those analogies are harmful, and I've included those in your notes. And then thirdly, premature Holocaust introductions. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, but we want our children to know about the genocide of the Jewish people, but we must not give them more than they can handle. Most children don't have a context for mass murder and they lack the emotional development to process graphic stories and photos. So make sure to introduce your children to the Holocaust and your grandchildren at maturity appropriate uh, way, in maturity appropriate ways. And then finally, biblical education. Um, Holocaust education is great. The problem is there are even states that do Holocaust, have mandatory Holocaust education. They are some of those that also have the highest rates of anti-Semitism. So just being educated is never going to um, change what's happening. But I'm speaking to you as Christian parents and grandparents. What can you do? Well, first of all, we need to, to do this in a biblical context. Teach about sin. 
how do you talk about the Holocaust without understanding the fallen nature of, of people? And I heard a, a Bible teacher say this a while ago, that it, it sounds terrible to our ears. We don't like this, but he said, in regard to our human nature, we have more in common with Adolf Hitler than we do with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the same human nature Hitler did, and we can only be redeemed by Christ. And so we need to understand that the, nat- the sin nature is innate and it's universal. Secondly, we need to teach Israelology. This is the study of Israel and God's plan. We need to remember that the Bible is largely about God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Uh, he formed Israel. He loves Israel. He's chastening Israel. He's going to restore Israel one day. And that he curses Israel's enemies and he blesses Israel's friends. So we need to make sure that people, that our children understand biblically, how do we grapple with Israel and, and God's plan for them? Thirdly, teach the biblical explanation of anti-Semitism. So again, we need to teach our children that anti-Semitism, first of all, is the result of our sinful hearts. And secondly, it's the result of Satan's opposition to God and his plan. And then we need to, of course, teach about the power of the gospel. So they must know that the only lasting solution to anti-Semitism, to genocide, to any sin is the good news of Jesus Christ. Finally, some action. What can we do? Well, first, we need to build bridges of friendship with our Jewish neighbors. Um, That might mean sending holiday cards, inviting them over for dinner, attending some of their community events, whatever it takes to demonstrate you genuinely care about them as people. Build those bridges. Secondly, demonstrate your support for Israel and the Jewish people in practical ways. You can volunteer at a Jewish community center, at Jewish Family Services, at a Holocaust museum. Um, We have a program at the Friends of Israel called uh, Bridges. And what we try to do is get you involved in your own communities doing these types of things. So let us know if you're interested. We We can get you set up for that. And then finally, offer your support in times of persecution, in difficult times. Attend a prayer vigil or a demonstration against anti-Semitism. Maybe you should help organize such a, a demonstration. Um, send a card or an email to a local synagogue or pro-Israel organization and offer to help, offer your support. And then finally, use your social media platforms or your, your newspaper writing skills, whatever it might be, to tactfully and lovingly uh, make your support for Israel and the Jewish people known to your community. And we would be happy at the Friends of Israel to give you some insight in how to do that. I want to just close with these two quotes. Charles Feinberg was a, a, is a, or was a Jewish man, he's with the Lord now, who was studying to be a rabbi and in the process heard the gospel and got saved. And he writes this, some injuries to Israel, God's people, cannot be repaired. How can the slaughter of six million Jews in Europe ever be repaired? How can this multiplied injury be righted? Impossible. And to think that everyone who touched them, let alone cremated them, was touching the apple of God's eye. Pretty sobering. And then finally, this is one of my heroes, Casper Tenboom. This is Corey Tenboom's father. He was warned by the Nazis that if he continued to harbor Jewish people, he would pay for it with his life. And his answer was, it would be an honor to give my life for God's ancient people. And if you know the story of Corey Tenboom and her family, um, Corey's father, Casper, and her sister, they did pay the ultimate price for saving the Jewish people during the Holocaust. 
Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOI Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.